Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week, we will be reading and discussing Burton Watson's translation of Chapter 5 of the Lotus Sutra, known as the Medicinal Herbs Chapter. This chapter is part of a series of chapters of the Lotus Sutra, namely chapters 3 through 7, which make use of parables to disclose the nature of the Dharma. In this case, the Buddha is expounding on the nature of the Ekayana, or the Buddha vehicle, which is superior to and encompasses the Mahayana and the Hinayana vehicles, or namely the path of the Bodhisattvas and the path of the Arhats. These parables represent the Buddha making use of skillful means or upaya to teach the Dharma. He's not telling it exactly like it is, because that's arguably impossible. Instead, he's telling stories which demonstrate the teaching through metaphor and simile. We have actually already read and discussed one of these parables, namely chapter 3, the parable of the burning house. I urge you to think about how the nature of Buddhahood is presented differently in this chapter than in that one. One of the questions we will be dealing with as we discuss this chapter is how these seemingly contradictory accounts of the nature of Buddhahood fit together and are not actually contradictory. We hope you enjoy. At that time, the world-honored one said to Mahakashapa and the other major disciples, Excellent, excellent, Kashapa. You have given an excellent description of the true blessings of the thus-come-one. It is just as you have said. The thus-come-one indeed has immeasurable, boundless asamkhyas of blessings. And though you and the others were to spend immeasurable millions of kalpas in the effort, you could never finish describing them. Kashapa, you should understand this. The thus-come-one is king of the doctrines. In what he preaches, there is nothing that is vain. With regard to all the various doctrines, he employs wisdom as an expedient means in expounding them. Therefore, the doctrines that he expounds all extend to the point where there is comprehensive wisdom. The thus-come-one observes and understands the end to which all doctrines tend. And he also understands the workings of the deepest mind of all living beings, penetrating them completely and without hindrance. And with regard to the doctrines, he is thoroughly enlightened, and he reveals to living beings the totality of wisdom. Kashapa. It is like the plants and trees, thickets and groves, and the medicinal herbs, widely ranging in variety, each with its own name and hue, that grow in the hills and streams, the valleys and different soils of the thousand-million-fold world. Dense clouds spread over them, covering the entire thousand-million-fold world, and in one moment, saturating it all. The moisture penetrates to all the plants and trees, thickets and groves, and medicinal herbs equally, to their little roots, little stems, little limbs, little leaves, their middle-sized roots, middle-sized stems, middle-sized limbs, middle-sized leaves, to their big roots, big stems, big limbs, and big leaves. Each of the trees, big and small, depending upon whether it is superior, middling, or inferior in nature, receives its allotment. The rain falling from one blanket of cloud accords with each particular species in nature, causing it to sprout and mature, to blossom and bear fruit. Though all these plants and trees grow in the same earth and are moistened by the same rain, each has its differences and particulars. Kashapa, you should understand that the thus-come-one is like this. He appears in the world like a great cloud rising up. With a loud voice he penetrates to all the heavenly and human beings and the asuras of the entire world, and like a great cloud spreading over the thousand-million-fold lands. And in the midst of the great assembly he addresses these words, saying, I am the thus-come-one, worthy of offerings, of right and universal knowledge, perfect clarity and conduct, well-gone, understanding the world, unexcelled worthy, trainer of people, teacher of heavenly and human beings, Buddha, world-honored one. 
Those who have not yet crossed over, I will cause to cross over. Those not yet freed, I will free. Those not yet at rest, I will put at rest. Those not yet in nirvana, I will cause to attain nirvana. Of this existence and future existences, I understand the true circumstances. I am one who knows all things, sees all things, understands the way, opens up the way, preaches the way. You heavenly and human beings, asuras and others, you must all come here so that I may let you hear the Dharma. At that time, living beings of countless thousands, ten thousands, millions of species come to the place where the Buddha is to listen to the Dharma. The thus come one then observes whether the capacities of these living beings are keen or dull, whether they are diligent in their efforts or lazy, and in accordance with what each is capable of hearing, he preaches the law for them in an immeasurable variety of ways, so that all of them are delighted and all are able to gain excellent benefits therefrom. Once these living beings have heard the law, they will enjoy peace and security in their present existence and good circumstances in future existences, when they will receive joy through the way and again be able to hear the law. And having heard the law, they will escape from obstacles and hindrances, and with regard to the various doctrines, will be able to exercise their powers to the fullest, so that gradually they can enter into the way. It is like the rain falling from that great cloud upon all the plants and trees, thickets and groves, and medicinal herbs. Each, depending on its species and nature, receives its full share of moistening and is enabled to sprout and grow. The law preached by the thus come one is of one form, one flavor, namely, the form of emancipation, the form of separation, the form of extinction, which in the end comes down to a wisdom embracing all species. When the living beings hear the law of the thus come one, though they may embrace, read, and recite it, and practice it as it dictates, they themselves do not realize or understand the blessings they are gaining thereby. Why is this? Because only the thus come one understands the species, the form, the substance, the nature of these living beings. He knows what things they dwell on, what things they ponder, what things they practice. He knows what law they dwell on, what law they ponder, what law they practice, through what law they attain, what law. Living beings exist in a variety of environments, but only the thus come one sees the true circumstances and fully understands them without hindrance. It is like those plants and trees, thickets and groves, and medicinal herbs, which do not themselves know whether they are superior, middling, or inferior in nature. But the thus come one knows that this is the law of one form, one flavor, namely, the form of emancipation, the form of separation, the form of extinction, the form of ultimate nirvana, of constant tranquility and extinction, which in the end finds its destination in emptiness. The Buddha understands all this, but because he can see the desires that are in the minds of living beings, he guides and protects them, and for this reason does not immediately preach to them the wisdom that embraces all species. You and the others, Kashapa, have done a very rare thing, for you can understand how the thus come one preaches the law in accordance with what is appropriate. You can have faith in it. You can accept it. Why do I say this? Because the fact that the Buddhas, the world-honored ones, preach the law in accordance with what is appropriate is hard to comprehend, hard to understand. At that time, the world-honored one, wishing to state his meaning once more, spoke in verse form, saying, The Dharma king, destroyer of being, when he appears in the world, accords with the desires of living beings, preaching the law in a variety of ways. The thus come one, worthy of honor and reverence, is profound and far-reaching in wisdom. For long he remained silent, regarding the essential, in no hurry to speak of it at once. If those who are wise hear of it, they can believe and understand it, but those without wisdom will have doubts and regrets, and for all time will remain in error. For this reason, Kashapa, he adjusts to the person's power when preaching, 
taking advantage of various causes and enabling the person to gain a correct view. Kashapa, you should understand that it is like a great cloud that rises up in the world and covers it all over. This beneficent cloud is laden with moisture. The lightning gleams and flashes, and the sound of thunder reverberates afar, causing the multitude to rejoice. The sun's rays are veiled and hidden. A clear coolness comes over the land. Masses of darkness descend and spread. You can almost touch them. The rain falls everywhere, coming down on all four sides. Its flow and saturation are measureless, reaching to every area of the earth. To the ravines and valleys of the mountains and streams, to the remote and secluded places where grow plants, bushes, medicinal herbs, trees large and small, a hundred grains, rice seedlings, sugarcane, grapevines. The rain moistens them all. None fails to receive its full share. The parched ground is everywhere watered. Herbs and trees alike grow lush. What falls from the cloud is water of a single flavor. But the plants and trees, thickets and groves, each accept the moisture that is appropriate to its portion. All the various trees, whether superior, middling, or inferior, take what is fitting for large or small, and each is enabled to sprout and grow. Root, stem, limb, leaf, the glow and hue of flower and fruit, one rain extends to them, and all are able to become fresh and glossy. Whether their allotment of substance, form, and nature is large or small, the moistening they receive is one, but each grows and flourishes in its own way. The Buddha is like this, when he appears in the world, comparable to a great cloud that covers all things everywhere. Having appeared in the world for the sake of living beings, he makes distinctions in expounding the truth regarding phenomena. The great sage, the world-honored one, to heavenly and human beings, in the midst of all beings, pronounces these words, I am the thus-come one, the most honored of two-legged beings. I appear in the world like a great cloud that showers moisture upon all the dry and withered living beings, so that all are able to escape suffering, gain the joy of peace and security, the joys of this world, and joy of nirvana. All you heavenly and human beings of this assembly, listen carefully and with one mind. All of you should gather around and observe the one of unexcelled honor. I am the world-honored one. None can rival me. In order to bring peace and security to living beings, I have appeared in the world, and for the sake of this great assembly, I preach the sweet dew of the pure law. This law is of a single flavor, that of emancipation, nirvana. With a single wonderful sound, I expound and unfold its meaning. Constantly, for the sake of the great vehicle, I create causes and conditions. I look upon all things as being universally equal. I have no mind to favor this or that, to love one or hate another. I am without greed or attachment, and without limitation or hindrance. At all times, for all things, I preach the law equally. As I would for a single person, that same way I do for numerous persons. Constantly I expound and preach the law. Never have I done anything else, coming, going, sitting, standing, never to the end, growing weary or disheartened. I bring fullness and satisfaction to the world, like a rain that spreads its moisture everywhere. Eminent and lowly, superior and inferior, observers of precepts, violators of precepts, those fully endowed with proper demeanor, those not fully endowed, those of correct views, of erroneous views, of keen capacity, of dull capacity, I cause the Dharma rain to rain on all equally, never lax or neglectful. When all the various living beings hear my law, they receive it according to their power, dwelling in their different environments. Some inhabit the realm of human and heavenly beings, of wheel-turning sage kings, chakra, brahma, and the other kings. These are the inferior medicinal herbs. Some understand the law of no outflows, are able to attain nirvana, to acquire the six transcendental powers, 
and gain in particular the three understandings, or live alone in mountain forests, constantly practicing meditation and gaining the enlightenment of Pratyekabuddhas. These are the middling medicinal herbs. Still others seek the place of the world-honored one, convinced that they can become Buddhas, putting forth diligent effort and practicing meditation. These are the superior medicinal herbs. Again, there are sons of the Buddha who devote their minds solely to the Buddha way, constantly practicing mercy and compassion, knowing that they themselves will attain Buddhahood, certain of it and never doubting. These I call the small trees. Those who abide in peace in their transcendental powers, turning the wheel of non-regression, saving innumerable millions of hundreds of thousands of living beings, bodhisattvas such as these, I call the large trees. The equality of the Buddha's preaching is like a rain of a single flavor, but depending on the nature of the living being, the way in which it is received is not uniform, just as the various plants and trees each receive the moisture in a different manner. The Buddha employs this parable as an expedient means to open up and reveal the matter, using various kinds of words and phrases and expounding the single law, but in terms of the Buddha wisdom, this is no more than one drop of the ocean. I rain down the Dharma rain, filling the whole world, and the single-flavored Dharma is practiced by each according to the individual's power. It is like those thickets and groves, medicinal herbs and trees, which, according to whether they are large or small, bit by bit grow lush and beautiful. The law of the Buddhas is constantly of a single flavor, causing the many worlds to attain full satisfaction everywhere. By practicing gradually and stage by stage, all beings can gain the fruits of the way. The voice-hearers and the Prachekabuddhas inhabit the mountain forests, dwelling in their final existence, hearing the law and gaining its fruits. We may call them medicinal herbs that grow and mature, each in its own way. If there are bodhisattvas who are steadfast and firm in wisdom, who fully comprehend the threefold world and seek the supreme vehicle, these we call the small trees that achieve growth and maturity. Again, there are those who dwell in meditation, who have gained the strength of transcendental powers, have heard of the emptiness of all phenomena, greatly rejoice in it in their minds, and emit countless rays of light to save living beings. These we call large trees that have gained growth and maturity. In this way, Kashapa, the law preached by the Buddha is comparable to a great cloud which, with a single flavored rain, moistens human flowers so that each is able to bear fruit. Kashapa, you should understand that through various causes and conditions, various kinds of simile and parable, I open up and reveal the Buddha way. This is an expedient means I employ, and the same is true of the other Buddhas. Now, for you and the others, I preach the utmost truth. None in the multitude of voice-hearers has entered the stage of extinction. What you are practicing is the Bodhisattva way, and as you gradually advance in practice and learning, you are all certain to attain Buddhahood. So that was chapter 5 of the Lotus Sutra, the Medicinal Herbs chapter. Docs, do you have any questions? So, to start out with more observations than questions, so the previous part of the Lotus Sutra that we read was the Parable of the Burning House. Uh, that was chapter three, question mark? That's right. Okay. So chapter three, that's where we were before. And in that parable, the Buddha is personified. Like he is a character in a story. He is a person that has agency. In this chapter, he is much more of a force of nature. He is the rain. He is providing sustenance to everything that he's touching. More of a force than a person, it seems. I note that it at least talks about treating all 
of the different herbs equally, but it also kind of doesn't. The different vehicles are given different sizes and kind of different levels of, I would say, like different scales that they operate on. So talking about the talking about the Hinayana and then follows on from the tendency in uh, that I've seen in my, almost all of the Mahayana sutras that we've read of denigrating the Theravada approach, while also saying that the Buddha himself approaches them equally. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought up the issue of not only the different paths being afforded like a different level of understanding and a different scale to which they receive the teaching that they're given, but also that he's not really a character in the story. Because those are really the two major themes that we see in here that are actually not entirely different from chapter three, but are presented in a different way than the themes and the idea that we saw in chapter three. So to address the lack of the Buddha as a character, we see in this chapter that he is shown as being singular and non-dual and as one with the Dharma. And that's not actually like a passive thing. Like that's not something that we have really seen before, chronologically speaking, I mean, in other sutras. So the Pali Canon doesn't actually frequently, if ever, make the argument that the Buddha and the Dharma are the same thing, right? Whenever the Buddha becomes the Dharma, the Dharma actually becomes sentient. It becomes intelligent. It, it becomes able to act upon the world in a particular way because it's afforded all of the qualities that Siddhartha Gautama the man has, right? And these include omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, etc., etc., etc. In Theravada, the omniscience portion functions as a teaching tool, right? The Bodhisattva path is not completely absent from the Theravada tradition. It's actually just one that they don't think is actually very realistically possible for most people to do, for most people to undertake. And that's why they teach the Arhat path, right? A bodhisattva is always an ideal and is still very much respected and venerated. For example, there are statues of Guanyin in Theravada temples and so on, but they believe that the bodhisattva path is more difficult and takes longer to get to. But whenever these Buddha paths and the Dharma and the teaching are regarded as one, then that kind of makes it a lot more discriminatory, actually. Because the Buddha, as we see in this text, he doesn't really value the Hinayana, the Pracheka Buddhas, the Arhats, or even really like any kind of lower enlightenment that much at all. He, of course, approaches them and rains Dharma on them all the same. But at the same time, they're not really actually taking up as much of what he is putting down, if that makes sense. So this denigration is almost like saying, it's not me, the Buddha, that regards you as being inferior. It's actually like the nature of the universe that it is this way. And the Dharma acts upon you in that way because your inferiority is due to your karma. It's due to your inability, due to your past karma to break free of karmic bonds, to accelerate your traversing of the path, your traveling on the path, and actually get to a higher level of enlightenment, like that of the bodhisattvas and the Buddhas. And so, you're still getting the same thing everybody else is getting, but it's actually your fault that you're not able to 
make as much use of it as everybody else is. So that's kind of an interesting distinction that's broken down specifically in this chapter and not in the chapter of the burning house and certainly also not in any other parable or story or sutra that we had seen that came about in history before the Lotus Sutra. You brought up another point as well. There was the absence of the Buddha as a character, but what was the other one? It had to do with the different plants that they were. Is that what it was? Yeah, I think you covered that at the beginning of that, where I was observing the cross-nominal sniping that I've complained about before. It's interesting how much of that has gotten written into the holy texts for these religions. We're seeing religious politics getting written into the religion, but it seems to be much more common among the Mahayana texts here. But that also might be me not being very well-read in religion. I don't know. Well, I think that the historical origin for a lot of this sniping has to do with different doctrinal interpretations among different monks and monasteries and groups that are followers of the Buddha who are taking their opportunity in the centuries after his death to sort of write in his voice. And that's why there are some branches of Buddhism that actually argue that the Heart Sutra, the Lotus Sutra, and all these other sutras are apocryphal. They argue that these were authored in the Buddha's voice as a means of putting down the mainstream, so to speak, as a means of reforming the Buddhist institution in the few centuries before the turn of the millennium and, and shortly after. And so, what we might be seeing here is that everybody that writes something down in this regard, in this canon, everybody who gets a seat at the table of this Buddhist canon, this newly forming Taisho canon, they want to say that the teaching that they are writing down is the superior teaching and that everybody else has it wrong. And so, that's why we might often see that they appear to be writing in response to the Pali Canon in response to what was kind of decided upon in the first and likely the second Buddhist councils that were gathered after the Buddha died, right? So, that kind of already existed and that was circulating and that was a practice and a canon and a curriculum that was already in use. And then the theory is that there are some urban or maybe forest groups of monastics, right? So, urban monastics, they would be monastics that live in a town and they beg and they spend most of their time experiencing alms and performing rituals for the community and so on. While forest monks are out there on their own, not really talking to anybody, they're really just practicing and meditating for themselves. The consensus is not there about whether the urban monks or the forest monks authored some of these texts that start doing the cross-denominational sniping. Some say it could be both. Some say the urban monks started writing the Mahayana text because they were experiencing giving, they were experiencing alms, and they wanted to prioritize the nature of giving as being the superior teaching out of all the Buddha's teachings. And that led to giving and compassion being prioritized in the Bodhisattva path, and thus the Bodhisattva path being held higher above other paths. And they also wanted to kind of put down the forest monks who were just kind of all alone and they weren't doing anything for the town. They were studying and meditating and becoming enlightened, but they weren't performing any rituals for the town, for the city that they lived in, for the community they were a part of. And so, that's one theory. The other theory is that the forest monks started writing these things because they saw that the urban monks were getting kind of a little too wealthy, actually. They were getting too much money from 
the donations of the community. And so because of that, they were getting kind of distant and far away from the actual teaching because they got clouded by material wealth and possessions. And so some say that the forest monks were the ones that ended up writing these Mahayana texts to put those guys down. And some people hypothesize that it was both that kind of did this strictly along doctrinal and practical lines. And so the idea of who actually wrote these texts and why is still a mystery to us. But we do know that it was people writing in the Buddha's voice long after he had died, and they were aiming to establish their legitimacy and superiority in terms of doctrine and in terms of ritual functions and community functions, and in terms of popular appeal. The thing about the Bodhisattva path that likely led to the development and the popularity of these sutras, regardless of whether they were apocryphal or not, is that they saw it as being amenable to the householder lifestyle, as being much closer to what lay people could do and strive for in their own lives, right? If you remember the Vimalakirti Sutra, that one argues that the actual bodhisattva ideal is to be where the suffering is rather than avoid it in a monastic sense so that you can actually address the suffering in the world as it is. And that kind of leads to the bodhisattva ideal being democratized in some senses. Whereas other times in other sutras that come before this, before the Vamalakirti Sutra, before the Lotus Sutra, you start to see the Bodhisattva path talked about as though these people should be isolated and protected more than your average monk. These people should be studying harder, meditating harder, and should not be engaging in worldly things at all because they don't need to be involved with that. That will only slow them down. That will only keep them from accomplishing their task of saving all sentient beings. That's something that actually the Lotus Sutra sometimes mentions, is that bodhisattvas should only go into town with a friend to make sure that they don't get distracted or get into any thoughts about them being a bodhisattva or into any thoughts of desire, so on and so forth. So, this kind of issue is very complicated in terms of early sectarian Buddhism and also in terms of popular appeal and also the cultural place and function of the monastic community in India and Nepal and so on. Interesting. So, the denominations of Buddhism that are talking about the Lotus Sutra, Heart Sutra, etc. as being apocryphal, we've been reading the Mahayana texts that have that denominational divide really thoroughly baked into its core. The Theravada texts would be more relying on older texts that didn't have any Mahayana texts to respond to, we don't see their side of this sectarian divide as much. That's absolutely right. I think that the reason why the Mahayana texts are prioritized both here on the show, of course, but also just in general in the scholarship and in the popular Buddhist imagination is that apocryphal or not, unfortunately, with all of the denominational sniping included, they became the ones that were the most popular. I mean, the vast majority, the vast, vast majority of people who are self-identifying Buddhists in the modern era and also for much of history have identified with the Mahayana organization. And for that reason, the Mahayana texts were the ones that were picked up for translation by Westerners during the colonial encounter. And also, they are the ones that were 
observed and practiced by the Mahayana Buddhist institutions that we saw the most of in East Asia. And also, these texts are actually a lot more accessible because thanks to their possible nature as being apocryphal, usually we find them in Chinese or in Japanese or in ancient Chinese. And that's actually more accessible for modern Chinese people to read and translate than in some cases it is modern Indian people or, of course, Westerners to read and translate Sanskrit and Pali. The texts that we've talked about so far, even if they're not apocryphal, sometimes we've had to say they're not preserved in Sanskrit because they just didn't have as good technology or as good of an environment for paper preservation as China did in ancient times. And so, the Mahayana texts are the ones that survived, the ones that got popular, the ones that we can access more easily, and therefore the ones that are more translated and the ones that are more studied. And I think that the Pali Canon gets left behind a lot. I think that the Pali Canon absolutely needs to be translated more and more and more. And I think that it needs to be studied a lot more because this denominational sniping that we see in the Lotus Sutra and in Mahayana texts in general, that actually kind of affects scholarly biases a lot. There's a lot of scholarly bias that essentially is a result of people believing these sutras when they read them. And you can't actually do that from a scholarly perspective. You actually have to question, is the Hinayana really that bad? Is the Theravada really screwing up that much all the time? Is this really what they believe or is this kind of a straw man thing going on here? And much of the scholarship, especially on Southeast Asian Theravada in the modern era, finds that it's not the case what these Mahayana people are saying about the Theravada people. And historically, it hasn't been the case either, right? One example, of course, is like I just mentioned about the presence of the Bodhisattva path in the Theravada system, but also the idea even that Mahayana uses Taisho canon and Theravada uses Pali canon alone without borrowing from either side even that is not entirely true. There are some texts and some sutras in the Mahayana canons that are adopted and used by Theravada and vice versa. So, I think that there is a lot of problematizing of the divide between Theravada and Mahayana in the modern era and also in history that needs to be done still by means of translating these sutras and studying them at a scholarly level. A fair portion of this sutra is talking about how important skillful means and the perception that comes with being a Buddha is to correctly preaching the Dharma. Absolutely, yeah. The Buddha here claims that he really only preaches one thing. And because he uses skillful means to do so, it's kind of consumed and understood differently by everybody. And this is actually a break off from the chapter three message, which is that the Buddha vehicle that he's talking about in this Lotus Sutra is one separate vehicle. It is the fourth vehicle, right? There's the Arhats, Bodhisattvas, and Pracheka Buddhas, and they all have these vehicles which have jewels and riches and stuff, but there is a whole other one which is better, which has even more wealth and riches on it, and that's the one that everybody should go for, right? In this, what we're seeing is that these three other vehicles, the Arhat, the Pracheka Buddha, the Bodhisattva, they exist because of people misunderstanding what the Buddha is saying, even though he's saying the same thing all the time. 
So a question that runs through the entire Lotus Sutra, especially this section, are there three vehicles or are there three plus one vehicles or are there four vehicles or is there one vehicle? That is not super clear, right? Because here we're seeing that the Buddha is arguing that the one vehicle encompasses the entire set of three. There is one Dharma. The Buddha preaches one thing only. And in other chapters, we've seen actually he's preaching four things and he's only started preaching the fourth thing in this text. So it's kind of complicated to say how many vehicles are there and why are there that number of vehicles. This particular chapter is an interesting contrast from what we just saw in chapter three. And in between this, I should mention Mahakashapa has told a parable about the prodigal son. This is a prodigal son story, which we chose to skip here because we think that it kind of creates a gap in order for us to not really think too much about three and five, about chapter three and chapter five, because it's telling a whole different story and doesn't present the Dharma in a way that kind of is as sharply contrasted as chapters three and chapter five are. We'll come back to chapter four in the future, but I wanted to strike a contrast specifically between three and five because we see an entirely different presentation of the message in these two chapters. And I think that it's important that we try and make sense of how to reconcile those. Skillful means doesn't actually do all the work for reconciling them as it might do whenever we're interpreting other parts of the sutra. Here, I think that you have to employ skillful means and you also have to analyze, is there one vehicle? Is there four? Is there three plus one? How many vehicles are there and why are there so many? There's really no clear answer to these questions, and we really leave that to the listener to ponder and to come to their own conclusions. This has been our reading and discussion of Chapter 5 of the Lotus Sutra, the Medicinal Herbs Chapter. We hope you enjoy, and we hope we see you next time. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and voice of hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of hermit. And this is Med Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com, or find us on Mastodon at brightbuddhism at mstdn.party. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.